Here are the 10 non-commandments crowdsourced by a non-believing chaplain after 2,800 submissions, evaluated by a committee of 13 judges, and compiled by an executive at Airbnb. Ready? Number one. Not all of these are bad. Some are terrible. <laughs> you be the judge. Number one. Be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Two. Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Three. The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four. Every person has the right to the control of their body. Five. God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six. Be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven. Treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Eight. We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. And nine, there is no one right way to live. Ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. What do you think? Why do you think they even do this? I mean, why offer $10,000 for the winning submissions? Isn't it this that people don't like to be told what they can and cannot do? Kevin DeYoung, who recounted all of this in his new book on the Ten Commandments, said this is the heart of rebellion. This is the spirit of the age in the year 2022. It's the default, default mode of the people you live near probably the person you work beside. Now, it's not true of everybody. After all, many Muslims believe in a law code. Hindus as well have their own dharma, their version of morality and law. But more and more, it seems even the people we encounter in Dubai will have this kind of permissive, even self-contradictory view, call them non-commandments, and yet they're all commands. They all carry a moral oughtness. They're saying you ought to live this way. Number nine says there is no one right way to live. But then right after that, we're told, leave the world a better place than you found it. Well, which one is it? Do as we say or do as you please. Maybe crowdsourcing isn't the best way to come up with a moral code. DeYoung said, the way to find moral instruction is not by listening to your gut, but by listening to God. Which, despite its unpopularity in some circles, is what we intend to do this morning by turning to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We have emerged out of the historical prologue now, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, 
and we have come into the substance of the book, right into the heart of the covenant between God and his people. And this morning, we see the law, the reaction, and the solution. That's the three points of the sermon. The law, the reaction, and the solution. First, consider the law. Now, before we begin, let me say this is a subject that I think some people find confusing. I mean, how do Christians relate to the Old Covenant law? Because we are not Israel. We are not under the Old Covenant. We are under a New Covenant, and yet we know innately that God's Word is authoritative. So, two helps for you. If you want to investigate this further, I photocopied a, uh, a one-page summary of the law by Tom Schreiner that I've just found to be excellent over the years. And there's a stack of about 40 of them over at that table, at the, at the book table. I would encourage you to get this one-pager, read it this afternoon, discuss it at your care life groups, discuss it um, Saturday morning with the men. And then uh, in addition, there is Kevin DeYoung's excellent pithy book, Ten Commandments, What They Mean, How They Matter, and Why We Should Obey Them as Followers of Christ. There are copies of this over on the bookstall as well. You know, there's so much in these Ten Commandments that uh, I only have time to touch on these as we go. But a few years ago, I preached one sermon for each one of these commandments. So if you don't want this to be a two-hour sermon, but you do want to delve more into the application of these commandments to your own life, you might go back to UCCD's website and just find the Exodus sermons on the Ten Commandments. Here we have the centerpiece of the whole law, verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said... I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to lo the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox 
or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. There are ten of them, and it is no accident that there are ten. You know, in Genesis 1, when God created the world, God spoke ten times. And so here, ten corresponding words or commandments, as if all creation hangs on the word of God, as if God is creating a people for his own glory. And here they are, the new generation now, on the plains of Moab, poised to enter in and God calls on them, hear, O Israel. Not just some of them. Not just the priestly caste. No, the whole community. O Israel, verse 2, the Lord our God made a, command, uh, made a covenant with us in Horeb. Now, Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this commandment, but with us who are all of us here alive today. That's interesting because, strictly speaking, God did make it with the prior generation. That was Exodus 20. But the point is, this is not simply an event in the past. This is not something that's just of uh, academic historical interest. No, he's speaking to them directly and personally. This covenant was a present reality for this new generation. And he reminded them of 40 years earlier, Mount Sinai, verse 4. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. Here was a speaking God who could have remained silent, but he did not. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, I think if we took a poll today at Ibn Battuta, most of the people who have any biblical knowledge at all would tend to think that, well, God gave the law to Israel at Sinai, and if they followed the law, then they earned a right standing with God, but they didn't. And so God scrapped plan A and went to plan B, which is salvation by grace through Jesus. But notice... Even these Old Testament laws are grounded in grace. Before he gives any commandment, before he lays down any statute, he identifies himself as their rescuer, the one who had initiated relationship. I brought you out of the land of slavery. So Israel received the law not so that they might 
be redeemed but because they already were redeemed so the exodus event is the gospel before the giving of the law one time Jesus was asked teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law and he replied love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments so love God and love your neighbor that's a summary of the whole law so break it down in those two categories first love God verse 3 you shall have no other gods before me not that there are other real gods but this acknowledges, acknowledges the allure the the pull of false gods remember their situation I mean these people are about to go into a new culture they're entering into a new land what have they been doing the last 40 years well they've been wanderers nomadic shepherders but now many of them would become farmers and in Canaan agriculture and religion were intertwined as Peter Craigie explained for the Canaanite farmer the role of the fertility gods was at least as important as the task of plowing and planting the seed so these Hebrews would become farmers minus the fertility cult and they would have to trust Yahweh their covenant Lord and it wouldn't be easy they had to rely upon him entirely and he demands a total allegiance it's kind of like a marriage he is deserving of absolute loyalty and fidelity or what the Bible calls love but it wasn't only whom they worshiped it was also how they worshiped look at the second commandment verse 8 you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the, in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth left to our own imaginations of who God is left to our own preferences of how he should be worshipped we'll get it wrong every time we will in our attempts to chisel, chisel and fashion a God pollute it and distort it by our own corrupt hearts and hands friends God is concerned not only that he is worshipped but even how he is worshipped and the second commandment involves worshipping the true God in the wrong way idolatry it targets any image or representation that supposedly brings you closer to God devotionally I mean maybe a cherished picture of Jesus that's in your bedroom or a crucifix that's on your wall depicting Jesus hanging there on the cross any item to help focus the mind on adoration as we pray you shall not make any likeness of anything and if you are queasy about the idea of a jealous God well I don't have time to get into it but go back to last week's sermon Deuteronomy 4 if you were not here check that out online and ask yourself would you rather have a God who doesn't care at all and when it says in verse 9 look at the middle of the verse the middle of verse 9 visiting the iniquity of the fathers 
on the children of those who hate me. It makes us wonder, is it fair that children would be punished for the sins of the fathers? I mean, that some would be finally judged because of the sin of someone else? No. God is not unjust. Repentance and life are possible. Let us be clear, even for a child from an ungodly family. But that doesn't mean that there are no consequences to the sins of the fathers. There's no ripple effect from fathers who hate God. So sin can cross generational lines. I'm not talking about generational curses. I'm talking about the consequences of sin leading into the next generation. D.A. Carson says, sin is often social in its effects. For instance, children from backgrounds of abuse often become abusers. Sin is rarely entirely private and individualistic. So, fathers, bear that in mind. The next time you willingly indulge in idolatrous sin, do you have a son? Do you have a daughter? Who knows where it will end? Who can tell how your sin might affect your family and subsequent generations? But still, final judgment, it says, is for those who continue to hate God. That's verse, uh, nine, uh, verse 9. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But for those who repent, there is abounding grace. So God's mercy is even broader and deeper than His wrath. Look at verse 10. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Third commandment. Verse 11. Verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, God's name is not just his tag. It's his, broadly speaking, it's his character, his whole reputation. And here's what's amazing. God has staked his name on his chosen people. I mean, this is why we baptize in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So baptisms are like the naming ceremonies of new believers, symbolizing their public union with Christ through faith. And this, incidentally, is why being a member of a church is so weighty and so sacred. In the New Covenant, it is the church that bears the reputation of Christ in the world. We're His ambassadors, and so it matters how we live. And we depend upon one another, just as Paul said. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Your commitment to Christ is given expression in a local assembly. And in this way, as you become a member of a church, you are telling your pastors, you are telling your fellow members that you're committing to them in gathering and in giving and in prayer and in service. And so if you've been coming along and you're not a, not a member of this congregation, well, be excited to attend the membership weekend or next Saturday. Saturday morning, 9.30 to 12.30, we're going to go through the basics of UCCD church membership. No one's obligated, but all are invited. Taking God's name in vain is more than just using bad language or profanity. Think carefully about this. We carry this badge wherever we go. 
in our speaking, in our living. Whenever we don't practice what we preach, we make a lie of who God is. It's to talk one way, but you act another way. It's to have a cross and scripture verse on your Instagram, and yet you live just like the rest of the world. On the day of judgment, nothing will stand between you and the due penalty for your sin. Because, verse 11, he will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Fourth commandment, verse 12. We're just ticking these off. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Do you know that in the ancient world there was no weekend? There was no regular day off. And certainly when the people of Israel were down in Egypt, I don't think the taskmasters felt constrained to a 40-hour work week. So what a joy to come to Mount Sinai and meet a personal Savior there on the mountain who says, verse 13, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath rest to the Lord your God. He was no tyrannical taskmaster. He cared for them. He bid them come to him to provide. And all the other nations were slaving away, chained to their jobs seven days a week. Can you imagine what that's like? These people were called to rest. Once a week, everything came to a halt. Saturday, the Sabbath, it was a regular reminder to these people. Our lives belong to God he has redeemed us. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Well, friends, this is how we love God. By keeping commandments 1, 2, 3, and 4. By having no other gods before Him. By worshiping Him as He has revealed. By bearing true and accurate witness with our lives and by resting in who He is and what He has done. The law teaches us to love God. But it also teaches us to love our neighbor. Look at the fifth commandment. Verse 16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you. Do you know that more than any other relationship it's the parent-child relationship that reveals God either for good or ill. Parents stand in for God. And it is no accident, is it, that God has revealed himself to us as Father. Which is why the fifth commandment is positioned here at the border of loving God, commandments 1 through 4, and loving neighbor, 6 through 10. Here, honoring father and mother is the hinge between these two. Our attitude toward our parents is our attitude toward God. And notice the promise at the end of 16. That your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I thought about this over the course of this week. What did loving and honoring mom and dad have to do with living long in the promised land? Isn't it because parents principally teach the Word of God to their children? 
We'll see that next week in detail. But you know, everywhere else in Deuteronomy, long life in the land depends on keeping God's word. And keeping God's word depends on one's receptivity toward one's parents in the home. This is how God's people would prosper. Parents are teachers. Children are students. And in this way, they would remain in a land flowing with milk and honey. Sixth commandment, verse 17. No murder. Because God is the author of life. He made us. Life and death are His business. He gave what Genesis calls the breath of life. Everything we have we owe to Him. And not only that, but each human is uniquely made in the image of God as a display of God's character. And so each murder is a subtraction of God's glory. It is an aggravated assault, a personal attack on the dignity of God. You know, whenever somebody is murdered, the main offense is not to the dead person. It's not even to the dead person's family. The main offense is to God. And so God hates even the roots, even the seeds that grow up into murder. Seventh commandment. Look at verse 18. You shall not commit adultery. I think people outside the church often wonder, why is adultery, why is sexual immorality such a big deal? Well, it's because marriage is a mirror. So the commitment of husband and wife in exclusive covenant loyalty reflects God and His relationship with His people. Isaiah 62.5 As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And the same with sex. Sex is a signpost pointing forward to something even greater. Sexual relations show us that a husband and wife love one another and no one else. It's a it's a picture of exclusive commitment one to another. That's why removing sex from marriage trivializes it, sullies it, diminishes it. And the God who designed sexual relations has something to say about how and when it should be enjoyed. Only in committed covenant marriage between one man and one woman. Any other sexual expression? is treason against God. The eighth commandment is uh, that you shall not steal. That's verse 19. Sometimes I wonder, why did stealing make the top ten list? Well, it's because God is the owner of everything. Our ownership is really just a temporary stewardship. We're only managers of the, the stuff, the property that is already God's. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. So when it comes to personal property, thievery is principally against God, who owns everything. And the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Not only in the narrow sense of legal testimony, but more broadly, in all of our speech. In fact, not only lying, but deception. God is personally concerned whenever we speak falsely. Why is that? 
It's because God is truth. His concern for honesty is rooted in his own character. Now that's different from the God of Islam, who may change his mind according to the doctrine of abrogation. He may go back and our God will never change his mind. Our God will never reverse himself. You can depend on him. His word is truth. He is truth. He embodies it. And so whenever we lie, we commit treason, we misrepresent who he is. So have you ever given out a half-truth to somebody? Have you ever borne false witness to somebody's ideas or somebody's character? Do you ever exaggerate? Maybe to make yourself look good. If so, you have violated the ninth commandment. And then number 10, verse 21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This last one is a little different because it focuses not on, not, not on what we do, but on what we want to do. Coveting. Desiring. Sin begins not with the hands, but much earlier in the heart, in the mind. Either you want something that is wrong to possess, like your neighbor's wife, or you want something lawful to possess, but you want it too much. So much so that it begins to control you, dominate you. You lose your contentment in God. So coveting says, God's not good enough. After all, who gave you your body and your brain and your job and your house and your abilities? And you want something else. You deserve something more. Better friends. Better income. Better family. Better clothes. A better spouse. These are the Ten Commandments. So how do you measure up, not to Airbnb standards, but to the standards of the living God? Friends, judgment is coming, and you can see that by the reaction of the people. Consider, secondly, the reaction in verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all of the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of, our, of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have, and has still lived? All of this happened on a mountain, and interestingly, it's the same mountain where 40 years earlier, Moses had encountered that burning bush. 
we read of in uh, Exodus. But now it's not just the bush that's burning. The whole mountain is engulfed in flames and the Lord had touched down from heaven and the earth quaked and rocks broke open. But the most terrifying experience was not these high voltage displays of God's presence. No, it was the sound of the voice of the living God. You see there in verse 25. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. It's easiest for us to lose sight that what was happening to these people was without parallel in human history. Verse 26. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire of we, as, as we have and has still lived? It makes you wonder, why is this God so unapproachable? Why had God told Moses 40 years earlier at the burning bush, do not come any closer? Or later, when they would enter the promised land, we read in Joshua, they're about to cross the Jordan. What did he warn the people then? Keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Why? Is it not because these people were lawbreakers? They were sinners just like us. I mean, they were living their own lives. Many of them preferred to go back to Egypt. When they could, they ignored God. Other times they told him to go away. Here we see a God of unimaginable holiness. He is a good and just God who is correctly, appropriately angry. And this is why Richard Sibb said, outside of Christ, God is terrible. What he meant was that God will cause terror in us if we appear before him in our sins apart from Christ. I remember one time hearing somebody say to me, you know, if God is there and he wants me to acknowledge him, why doesn't he just show up and make it unmistakably clear? It's like the young man Kevin from Durban, South Africa. He was an ex-Christian. He'd been disappointed by the church and he said, I've come to this, the decision that I shall remain an atheist until a God proves me otherwise. If this all-knowing, all-caring God really wants me to go to heaven, he'll show up. In other words, he'll just remove all doubt. He will appear. But ironically, that's the very thing that Kevin doesn't want. He doesn't want this God to show up. Because this God shows up outside of Christ, it means judgment for sinners in rebellion against him. I mean, just imagine going to the Grand Canyon and standing on the precipice, or standing at a cliff's edge at the Swiss Alps and looking down thousands of feet into the chasm below. Hebrew says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friend, this is the destiny for every human, including every human in this room, because every one of us is guilty of law-breaking. But there is a solution. Thirdly, 
there is a solution. What did these people do? Well, they pled with Moses to mediate. Look what they said to Moses in verse 27. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And Moses continues in verse 28, And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I'm giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land you shall possess. God was so terrifying that they desperately pleaded with Moses to stand in for them so that they could keep a safe distance from God. And they were right to do this. It was not a case of overly sensitive conscience. God actually affirms their decision. And so Moses went into the darkness and the cloud on their behalf, a mediator between God and men. Many years later, an overconfident young man came to Jesus. And he asked Jesus how he could gain eternal life. If you want to enter life, said Jesus, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, said the man. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus aimed the law directly at the heart every time. Do not murder. He said, even anger and hatred condemn you. Do not commit adultery. Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And where was Jesus when he made these pronouncements? Interestingly, he was on a mountainside. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, it was on a mountain where God had given the Ten Commandments. Jesus was showing that he is the rightful legislator of God's people. He was claiming authority for himself that only God has. Now, these Ten Commandments are not a checklist for how you become a Christian, how you become right with God. I mean, we can't, by doing these things and checking them off, bring God into our debt so that He will be happy with us. Now, look with me at the sheet that was included in your bulletin, that white sheet with the law. This one here, it says the law. Pull that out. As we conclude, we're just going to 
tick a few of these. Look at uh, Romans 3.20, the fourth from the top. Romans 3.20. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. So do you see the purpose of the law? It could diagnose the disease, but never prescribe the cure. It could show you how far you were from God, but it could never draw you near. And so Martin Luther said, the point of the law is not to make men better, but to make men worse. That is, it shows them their sin, that by the knowledge of it, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means, driven to seek grace. So, brothers and sisters, the point of the law is to bring us to Christ. Now, look midway down that sheet at Galatians 3.21. Midway down, Galatians 3.21. Is the law, then, contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, and notice this, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, friends, Jesus obeyed the law for us. He's the only one whoever truly loved the Father, whoever truly obeyed Him, He alone was completely loyal. What did Jesus say to those who were accusing Him? Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And they were silent. And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shuddered in horror at the prospect of dying on the cross. Not just the revulsion of the physical torment, but much more the spiritual agony being separated from his heavenly Father, bearing the curse in the place of guilty lawbreakers like us. His soul in that moment was overwhelmed with sorrow, and so he pled with God, my Father, if it's possible, may this cup be removed from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. But there was no other way. And so Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. He died for us, the righteous, in the place of the unrighteous. Friends, this is the best news in the history of the world. Look at that next to last verse from the book of Acts. Acts 13, down at the bottom. 13.38 Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Many years later, on another mountain, Peter, James, and John had gone up with Jesus to pray. And as Jesus was praying, it was very interesting, he was transfigured somehow. The appearance of his face changed and his clothes, it said, became like a flash of lightning. And two men in splendor appeared with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. 
Moses, who had heard the voice of God on Mount Sinai, and Elijah, who had been brought to that same mountain, but not in the fire and the tempest, only in the quiet whisper of God's sovereign word, and the cloud of glory came around and enveloped them. And once again, God's voice sounded from the cloud. But this time, God did not proclaim another Ten Commandments to be added to the covenant of old. Rather, what did the voice say? This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We think of law as something to obey, but Jesus spoke of law as something to fulfill. Notice that in Matthew 5. It's the third one on your list. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So friends, do you see now how Jesus fulfills the Ten Commandments? Just run through them quickly in your mind. You shall have no other God before me. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You shall make, not make for yourself an idol. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the true icon. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But the New Testament says the Sabbath rest was a shadow whose substance was Christ. And so we rest today not by going to Palestine, but by coming to Christ, the one who said, I will give you rest in a restored relationship with the living God in a new heaven and a new earth. You shall not murder because Jesus died for us. You shall not commit adultery because we await the wedding supper of the Lamb. You shall not steal because Jesus said better to give than to receive. And do not bear false witness. What did he say before Pilate? For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. You shall not covet because Jesus invites us to enjoy him as the all-satisfying object of our desire. It's what he said to the rich man who thought he was obeying all the commandments. Go, sell everything you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come. Follow me. He is the one mediator between God and men. Is there anyone here today who has not put your trust in Christ. Turn from your sin. Believe the good news. Be freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And you will be saved. Friends, this is good news. Not only can we be forgiven of all of our sin, the whole of it, but now we can be freed to live in a new way to actually please God. No longer the frown of His condemnation, but the benevolent smile of His blessing. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. 
And now, by the power of the Spirit, we can actually please God. Our lives can be conformed to Christ as we trust and obey. Do you remember those stone tablets? You know, the Ten Commandments etched by the very finger of God? That's the old way of the written code. But there is a new way of the Spirit in Christ. No more motivated by guilt, but now motivated by gratitude. John Stott asked, why do we serve? Not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience. Friends, we don't need to make up ten crowd-sourced, contradictory non-commandments to go along with the modern sensibility. God has spoken, and the law is appealing, and the law is attracting people from all over the world better than thousands of pieces of gold and silver, because the law leads us to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we remember what our risen Savior said. That everything written about Him in the law of Moses must be fulfilled. We give you praise and honor that He is the centerpiece of all human history. All previous history pointing forward to our Savior. All subsequent history looking back at His accomplishment at Jerusalem. His death and resurrection. And He will come again. to judge the living and the dead, and to redeem all of those who are eagerly waiting for Him. O Lord, cause us to be waiting upon Him on that day. Stoke the flames of affection of our heart. Transform our minds, O God, as we meditate on these truths, and seal it to us even as we sing this closing song. For Jesus' sake, amen. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let's stand and sing.